Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. We are here today with uh, Michael Beirut. Um, Michael, before I begin, I just wanted to, for, well, first off, I want to thank you for coming on. And, Rob, you're uh, spending time with me on a, on a Monday at Pentagram. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, before I begin, I just wanted to share a quick story with you. Um, when I first started this podcast, uh, it was just you know an impulse buy on Amazon. I was like, I'm going to buy a microphone, try something out creative, and uh, this will be my, you know, my side project. And um, I remember that John Mayer a few years back gave a speech about setting your expectations when you embark on a project and, you know, you set out on, on to accomplish a goal. You know, where, where is the bar? And uh, for me, when I, when I did it, it sounded crazy at the time. I was like, well, you know what? I'll, con- I'll consider this uh, a successful project if I can get Michael Beirut to come on. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I'm not just saying that to appease you. I mean, you could, my fiance would, would vouch for me on that. I was like, well, maybe one day. And she was like, he, he's never going to come on. So this is very surreal. And I, I don't know where to, uh, to go from here as far as guests. I might have to, you know, go around the Pentagram office. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But thank you for being here, though. This really is an honor, and uh, I'm very flattered that you would spend your, your uh, busy time with me. So It's my pleasure, Rob. Thanks. Cool. All right, so uh, let's get it started. Um, at the AIGA Design Conference, you gave a speech entitled What I've Learned, and you talk about the trajectory of your career and what you've learned along the way. Uh, during the talk, you stated um, to hijack your mentors, and that was also another inspiration for this podcast, I should add. From that, um, that's how new this podcast is, that it's kind of from there. But you said you don't have to ask them permission, you hijack them. They don't need to know that they are your mentors and you do not need to tell them that uh, you are their protege. Can you explain how you came to this conclusion? Did you always have this or, or was it something you discovered as your career went on? Um, I, I, I don't think I ever thought of it consciously, but I kind of decided really early on um, you know, when I was in college that w- what I just found the most inspiring was being exposed to people whose work I admired and kind of coming to understand how it was they, they did that work, you know, what their inspirations were, what their methodology was to uh, develop the work, how they could persuade clients to, you know, how they could find people to commission the work, how they could explain those, those, those clients to actually follow through with the work, how they made sure that it was good, how they just sort of like fought for excellence. And so that could be, um, you know, I had uh, uh, professors at the University of Cincinnati like Gordon Salco and Joe Batoni and uh, um, Stan Broad and Ann Gory Goodman and Heinz Schenker, who I really admired. I had... Um, uh, inter- internships that I did with uh, Dan Bittman in Cincinnati and AIJ medalist Chris Pullman, then up at WGBH up in Boston. Then, of course, I took a job right out of school with Massimo Vignelli, uh, with whom I worked for 10 years from the week after I graduated until just a little bit more than 10 years later. And um, I never said to any of those guys, would you be my mentor? I just sort of attached myself to them and sucked every ounce of uh, infor- information and inspiration and everything else I like could. A mosquito, out of them, right? Like a mosquito, <laughs> like a parasite or a parasite, leech. There you go. There yeah, you go. exactly. And, um, and, um, and, then, and at the same time, um, I also learned that, um, you know, 
all around me were you could you could learn from everyone. Yeah, I mean you could learn from anyone or anything. You could learn from a book. You could learn from a, um, a TV show. You could learn from a piece of music or a piece <clears throat> in a art gallery. Um, you could learn from people your own age. You could learn from people that were younger than you. You could learn from people that were designers. You could learn from people that did something totally different. And so um, you know, to a certain degree, I sort of. I think the, the conventional idea of mentor as I, is I, then I, I came to understand, oh, like these guys were really my mentors. And they acted as my mentors. They would advocate for me. They would, um, um, you know, they would um, give me opportunities that made me grow as a designer and I'd say as a person, as a human being too. Um, but, but I think that, was, that wasn't the starting point of the relationship. The relationship just was re, me really um, kind of being interested in and being inspired by them and just being an inquisitive person who was both willing to learn and then I think in the long run kind of you in turn have to be willing to teach and be a mentor yourself in a way right so I think the um, I start I, I, I never thought about this that much until I would start getting inquiries you know questions later on in life uh, from people saying you know you know, how can I find a mentor? Would you be my mentor? And, you know, and I, you know, I, I mean, I never... It's a lot well, to ask of someone. Yeah, but, <laughs> but people, I mean, people, and people see the power of that sort of relationship, and I think they just decide, you know, I'm going to be bold and go for it. Right. And what I, what, and I sort of like, you know, I thought, well, that's a good way to do it, I suppose. But when I really thought about how you know, how I came to have these relations myself. It had much less to do with kind of casting people in my mind as potential mentors and more just to do with acting on my enthusiasm and passion I had for, um, for you know, the professional field specifically, for different individuals and their work specifically, and just for the idea of design as a, um, as a social activity that you do with other people. So I sort of started saying, look, you know, you're making your first mistake by asking for permission. I just, you know, I mean, you don't just even, do yeah, just do it, you know. And, um, and, and you don't, um, you know, if you just sort of like see every relationship you have not as an opportunity for, benefit or exploitation, but, uh, but for teaching and learning, um, it ends up really being something that benefits everyone. So I learned, I swear to God, I learned just as much from the designers that work for me at Pentagram, obviously the partners I have here, um, a few of which are older than me, a lot of whom are younger than me, and just all over town, you know, people that both do what I do, do something completely different all over the world, really, are people from whom I learn something or other. And, you know, yeah. and sometimes I've been inspired by their <clears throat> writing. I've been inspired by their work. I've been inspired by their example. And I've never even met them. You know, I just, right. I, you know, I, every once in a while, I'll sort of, uh, uh, a few months ago, I met someone who wrote a book that really had inspired me. And, uh, that I'd never met the person before, and it was just sort of, I felt like I knew them when I met them. And I think it's sort of alarming, actually, when yeah, that happens because they're alarming. like, who, <laughs> it's who, happening who are right you? now to me. No, no, no. But just like, <laughs> for them, it was alarming. It was just like, who are you again? I mean, yeah. sort of, oh, I'm your biggest fan. So, yeah. um, uh, so I think it's, um, but, but I mean, that's sort of the world just presents all those opportunities. And I think it's a big mistake if you think, 
that um, that that relationship has to start with an application form and a uh, you know and a sort of a, uh, a formal agreement between you as a protege and your target as a mentor. I just think just be hungry and be curious and be enthusiastic and passionate, and it all just sort of comes together. Right, that's awesome, and I've I've experienced that firsthand with this podcast, and it's been uh, you know I think this is like the seventh episode or so, um, but it's really crazy because I've I've gotten. You know, I used to kind of watch courses on Linda.com with uh, with Sean Adams, and I was right. like, "Wow, it'd be so cool to meet him." And then when you meet him, he's he's exactly that same person. Then by the end of it, you realize that you know that these people are 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 very similar to the what the, you know, yeah. the thing they are on the internet. So it's so cool, though, and it's been so rewarding. Yeah, but uh, it, it's, and, and and by doing them as podcasts, you're actually. Um, you know, it's an act of generosity on your part because you're making yes. these conversations available to the world, to people who aren't there, you right. know, on the line when you're having the conversations or in the room when you're having the conversations. And I think it really is a way to, um, you know, to magnify um, that individual benefit that you would get so that anyone yeah. can really partake of it, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's really kind of neat because when I first started doing them, I would ask these questions that, that were kind of, you know, your average interview questions, but, you know, when you have an hour to sit down with somebody like yourself, it, it's important to remember that, you know, people are listening and I, I try now to ask the questions that, that I would, you know, that I would, if we were just sitting down at, at, at dinner and yeah, I had, yeah. you know, an hour to talk to you. So, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, I like that answer, by the way, that was like two questions. My, my next two questions were like in there. So that's good. Um, I find myself endlessly sifting through books and portfolios of my favorite designers, you know, trying, as everybody else does, to sort of crack the code of great design. Um, and Sean Adams has told me about, you know, ask Michael and he'll be able to tell you anything about design history or <laughs> where that's from and um, things of that nature. So you have kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of design. Uh, where do you find inspiration? I mean, where where do you... I know, because do you ever feel like you're kind of out of things to read, or, or is there always more? No, 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 no. <laughs> never. I, I have, a, I have such a backlog of things to read. It really is, uh, um, uh, it's scary. And I'm actually at the age now where I'm kind of realizing that I, I may not have a long enough life to get through all the things that I want to read between now and then. Particularly because I sort of, uh, um, unlike my my younger days, I, I. I go to bed, I open a book, and I can like I, I'm unconscious before I get to the bottom of the page. I used to be able to say, that happens, so don't yeah. feel bad. It's okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I was when I was a kid. I wasn't like that as much. So um, yeah. no. So I no. I get tons of inspiration from all over the place, and I also just um, um, it's. I think there's it. It's there are different kinds of designers in particularly graphic designers. I I think people. My old boss Massimo, I think, used to. Uh, he was very big on saying uh, design is one. If you can design one thing, you can design anything. And I think he really believed that and he really lived that principle. And it took me a while to realize that I actually, what I think that may be true for him, but it's not true for me. I'm a graphic right. designer. Right. And I'm a graphic designer um, not because I like type and PMS colors better than I like, you know, architecture or product design or this or the, the or the materials you use for those other disciplines but what i like about it is that it's about communication and the subject matter you're communicating is usually something that's outside your own area of expertise right and so um uh you know part of you know 
one of the things that I actually find inspiring is, you know, I'm certainly inspired when I look at, you know, the work of other designers, people that are, you know, contemporaries or up and coming or long dead. You know, they all, you can learn stuff from all that stuff. Um, but, um, but also just being in a situation where I'm meeting someone new and they have some sort of, um, you know, they've decided they have some sort of problem that they think is, uh, uh, can be a, requires some sort of solution that involves graphic design. And, um, I, I, I just find that I just take advantage of that situation just to really, satisfy my curiosity about what it is they do, what it is they're trying to achieve. I try not to, I don't work that well with Sorry, people. Sorry, my cat got in the that's way. Okay. That's nice. <laughs> I don't work that well with people that do, um, you know, there's some things that I find boring that I just kind of like can't get, I get excited about or can't figure out why it's interesting, although I don't deny that it's interesting to other people. And there are some other things that I'm just like super fascinated by that I um, uh, I'm probably know more than enough about it already. But, um, you know, I think that designers who sort of see, who come into those situations and they're, they're, they just can't wait to start, like, doing design all over it. Right. And they, they're not patient they're, and they're not really taking advantage of this chance to kind of crack open a door and to step into another world. A lot of times you end, you know, I mean, you end up running out of aspects of graphic design that are interesting. And it's like there are only so many typefaces and colors and shapes and whatnot, right? Right. And so the uh, big source of inspiration for me is just whatever particular situation I'm thrown into. What advice would you give to an entry-level designer when trying to land their first you know, real job and get their foot in the door in uh, the big leagues, so to speak? Um, okay, my first advice is, um, uh, I mean, you should aim high, but kind of work, um, but, but kind of, um, kind of, work your strategy up from the bottom. That's what I would right. do. This is really specific advice. I mean, what I would do is if you know anyone that has a job at a place that you think is interesting, if you know anyone that has a job, start with them. Any, like someone who graduated last year from your school, someone right. who's graduated from your class from your school. Um, you know, they're sort of your first step into things. I think people just sort of like get it in their heads that they're cheating themselves so they're not ambitious enough if they don't kind of call up if they don't start with the list of AIJ medalists and work down from there <laughs> but that's not how I got the job with Massimo Vignelli I got the job with Massimo Vignelli because I had an internship and the guy that I worked with um, directly at that internship not the boss but the guy who was like my direct supervisor right. who had graduated uh, uh, from school himself maybe three four years ago um, had a classmate who had graduated with him three, four years ago, and who had just gotten a job at Vignelli Associates in New York. And so I was going to New York, and this guy I worked for, Tom, said, um, hey, um, uh, why don't you look up my friend Peter, if you're down in New York, he just got this job at Vignelli. And so that's how I got in there. And I wasn't even saying, can you introduce me to Massimo Vignelli, or I'm looking for a job. I just wanted to sort of like see what the inside of that office looked like. So right. I was kind of like going in without any particular agenda. Yeah. And I, used to, I, I just loved, again, I loved doing that just because I loved kind of like seeing where people worked. And I just thought it was all fascinating. Right. And I never sort of like viewed, you know, any of those encounters or interviews as sort of like the, oh my God, this is like the big interview that's going to make or break my career. To me, it was just right. fun. It's like tourism for me, sort of. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
And, I, and, and by the way, I was doing this um, at a moment in time in the early 80s where there was a terrible economic recession going on. You know, the economy was, you know, crummier, you know, as crummy as it's ever been. Um, and the field itself was much, much smaller. I mean, you actually could um, get all the name. You could get the names of every single kind of decent graphic design company in New York on one on typewritten on one side of a piece of paper, basically. Yeah, yeah. It was a small field, and on top of that, it was completely baffling because um, you know there was no internet, obviously. So your ability to research any of these places was almost non-existent. You couldn't go online and see what kind of work they did at a place like. Got chalk and ash, let's say, you know, yeah. and even I can't remember how I even how how I knew what I knew about Massimo Vignelli growing, you know, going to school right. in Cincinnati, Ohio, without any internet, without anything else, right? Just was, um, you know, stuff in books and magazines, and there were darn few of those back then. So I yeah. think, you know, to me, I think it's a matter of just letting your enthusiasm and interest and curiosity be your guide. It works when you're, like I said, the same advice I gave really for being a good designer. Right. I think the same thing somehow pertains when you're looking for a job. Um, if you sort of like get fixated on one place and say that's the place I, re I really want to work at, uh, ch chances are you're pro it's not going to work out. It didn't work out for me. The place yeah. I really wanted to work at was uh, Schirmeyer and Geismar, actually. That was yeah. my favorite design firm in New York. Nothing, nothing against Vignelli Associates, but uh, yeah. uh, it was uh, Schirmeyer and Geismar where I really sort of like, they, they represented kind of like my idea of what design was all about. And, um, uh, and I got, I dropped off my portfolio. I picked it up. There was a, uh, a, a, hand, a nice note inside uh, but it was sort of like a uh, nice to see your portfolio, um, go away, kid. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Better luck next time. It's and nice so, just to get a response sometimes too. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Meanwhile, my wife, who's not who in the same period, my wife, who's not a designer, who had an MBA, was looking for a job, and she would just go to the post office with like literally thirty letters at a time, lick the stamps, drop them in the mailbox, wait for a response, and she'd maybe get five responses back four of which were form letters saying we have no positions but thanks for your interest yeah. and then one of which might be something and you know it, I, I can't believe anyone got anything done in those days licking <laughs> stamps and waiting for a landline phone yeah. to, it was amazing so uh, in a way Rob you got it you got your work cut out for you there's like tons yes. of places all over the country all over the city all over the world for that matter yeah. that are doing really interesting work where you could actually have a blast and it's just a matter of um, you know, uh, not holding your breath. You know, I, I, I just, to me, yeah. I, I would be like a kid in a candy store these days. There'd be yes. so many places that I'd be interested in working, so many, and so many places I'd never heard of that I'd even be more excited about. And so I think there's tons of possibilities out there. I think if you just are open-minded and um, don't worry about kind of like, um, you know, that big interview with your, um, you know, with with your design hero, that may not be the thing that opens the well, door. That's happening and, now, so that's yeah. I could check that off the bucket list. So, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, the people, I, the, I have um, um, eight designers that work for me, and uh, every single one of them started at Pentagram as an intern, as a paid intern. Um, not always on my team, and they didn't. Some of them kind of went from being an intern on my team to being a full time designer on my team. Right. 
And a lot of those interns are people who, um, I mean, I, I usually don't even hire the interns here. You know, yeah. my senior designers will do the interviews, look at the portfolios and pick who's going to be here for three months or six months or whatever yeah. it is. And then sometimes some of those people click and then they end up here full time and they end up here for five years. And like, you know, uh, you know, and so uh, uh, I've got a fantastic team. And, you know, only, you know, all of them are, have those uh, characteristics that I described that I admire and I like to see in other people. But I don't think with any of them they ever had like sort of that moment of truth where it was an interview and it was between them and two other people and they had to kind of come in. It just was, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it can, it, it, these things can happen in mysterious ways without you even noticing actually. Yeah, that's cool. And you, you de definitely indeed have a uh, very talented uh, design team, Brett yeah. Cobb and all those guys. Those guys are all uh, design heroes of mine, I guess you could say. You know, me but, too, uh, me too, me too. They're so, uh, you know, the, the the work that you guys do in the physical space is, uh, you know, I, I love everything, but yeah. um, I, I kind of had that same experience that you had with like the, the school play poster. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had that, um, that experience a couple of times, like on the last uh, company that I worked for, um, they had a, it was in my town. There was a big sign right out. I had that kind of poster moment where there's yeah. a, an actual sign. So, so I can only imagine, uh, the opportunity to work at places like, you know, Governor's Island and, and things of that nature yeah. and Verizon. I remember I walked into, uh, MetLife stadium for a jet game. I'm not a Jets fan, but, uh, I went with my uncle and I remember seeing the Verizon logo that you had created and I saw it and, uh, there was a big media storm around that one too. And at first, I wasn't like totally sold on it because it was just a, such a change. But I went to MetLife Stadium and I saw the Verizon logo in the physical form, in a physical sign, like in MetLife Stadium. And I was like, wow, Michael Beirut did it again. What a great logo. But it's just so cool. Like I could only imagine working, you know, you're at the Jet game and all of a, you, know, you look off in the distance and there's your logo. Does that... Is that as awesome as I, as I would think it is? Um, awesome may not be the word, but it, it is funny. I mean, I'd say every time I ride a, uh, a subway car in New York, chances are there's a, um, there's a pentagram logo somewhere yeah. in the car. And <laughs> sometimes it's one that I did. And uh, it, it's, it's fun, actually. And, and, and one of the things, I mean, that experience you just described right. is – Part of what happened as I matured as a designer, and I think you can only achieve this through work and experience over time. I'm not sure there's a shortcut to it. Is um, you know the design that looks fantastic in a presentation, or the design that looks fantastic in your sketchbook, or the design that looks fantastic on your own computer screen, um, may not be the design that'll work the best at MetLife Stadium. You know, right. and it's actually hard to imagine you know, these things having lives that go beyond, you know, your own, coming out of your own head. To a global you know, scale. Which your is team's really head, crazy. you know, going out there and kind of having a life. And a life, in fact, that, um, you know, that may go on for some time. And, you know, I think particularly with Verizon, which I would admit as much as anyone else, is sort of like, it's not like a tricky logo. It's, a, it's right. like straightforward and simple a thing as we were trying as we could possibly make it and our client was really enthusiastic about this drive towards simplicity 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 mm -hmm. and um w and one of the things that i wanted to do was um come up with something that i thought people could have fun people could do things with you know 
a, you know, a week after it's launched, a year after it's launched, five years after it's launched, ten years, people could still be coming up with different kind of like twists that that kind of simplicity would allow. And you know, and I and I was I studied logos like the Nike Swoosh or the Target Target, and you sort of realize that those things are just they're they're not like, I mean, they're 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 brilliant simple abstract forms, but they're not like, you know. Right. I'm, like, I'm not sure you'd say like the Target logo is quote unquote creative. It's a dot with yeah. a circle around it, and it's illustrating the word that it stands for. But it's been used. That simplicity allowed it to be used in so many different interesting ways that um, you know that couldn't have been anticipated or or pre preordained by the designers of it back in the late '60s. So right. I think it takes a certain amount. Of, yeah. So it you have to. I think some people freak out if the uh, um, if the thing they design goes out into the world and it's used in ways that they weren't imagining, right. you know, they, they want to sort of have it. You know. yeah, I've experienced that firsthand. With yeah, I mean, like, and I sort of um, um, the control freak in me obviously wants everything to be used a certain way, exactly the way I want it to be used. But um, but what I've learned as I've kind of gone on in my career is that um, uh, life is more complicated than that. Right. And sometimes the biggest, the best thing you can do is come up with something that actually is, you know, is, is almost specifically designed to enable different people to do things to it that has a kind of simplicity and basic integrity that will allow those sort of variations to happen without, without really changing it fundamentally. And, I, and I've, I've designed things that were so delicate and tricky that they almost needed to be like handled with white gloves and kind right. of. You know, it has to be done exactly this way, or it won't work. And and those things, like they're 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 fragile, and they yeah. end up kind of you know, you turn around and uh, a year later, or even a week later, someone's doing something wrong with them, and there's not a, there's not you can't make a rule book, you can't inaugurate people as the logo enforcers to kind of keep everyone in line because no, the nature the nature of uh, of human life is there's going to be uh, you know, people are going to, you know, react, you know, uh, with, um, you know, with precision sometimes or react sloppily other times. And that's just what life is. That's what makes life interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I had a great talk with this. Uh, for anyone who's interested on, on this topic, uh, the, my last podcast was with uh, Leland Mashmeyer from yeah. Collins, uh, who is just incredible. I was, I was, I've watched that time and time again, and I'm still trying to catch up with what he's saying. But, uh, you know, they were talking about when they designed a Collins and uh, him and Brian do mm -hmm. excellent work. Uh, but they were talking about how, you know, they, they make systems with, you know, the, the in-house designers in mind. So, you know, when, when all is said and done and, and they're yeah, done yeah. consulting, that, that, you know, the designers want to then use that work and put that out into the world. And, you know, like the Spotify system was very fluid. And, um, yeah, you know, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you had that with the Hillary campaign and all that yeah. stuff. So hope that, hope that logo works, man. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Get Trump out of there. Oh, me too. Step by step. Yep. Um, okay. So on the uh, subject of logo design here, uh, your podcast with Jessica Helfand, The Observatory. Um, Jessica, Jessica's watching. I'm a big fan of hers too. Uh, on a recent episode entitled The Good, The Flat, and The Ugly. <clears throat> very clever, by the way. You had a very nuanced conversation about the new Instagram logo. Uh, but I wanted to weigh in with a question about uh, you know, rebranding, you know, when you, when you see a, an, 
on the one hand, you see many brands, it almost seems as if they're like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, you know, not really being cognizant of like brand equity or what that logo represents. You know, they, they, they rebrand it, but not, you know, the, the end user doesn't always want it to be rebranded. But uh, on the other hand, though, it sparks a, a global, very powerful global conversation that, uh, you know, is heard throughout the world. I mean, I, I, I would venture to say that the, the guys over at Instagram, I mean, that campaign was a success. I, I, I think, I mean, so many people talked about it. Say what you will about it. It got a conversation. Everybody knows it. You know, whether or not you like it, it's out there. It's been discussed time and time again. But should should there be concern in the design community about, about that, though, that this kind of, well, you know, this year it's gradients, next year it's not gradients, and kind of just flip-flopping back and forth. I mean, I don't think that companies like Coca-Cola would have been so successful if they were constantly, you know, rebranding these global icons. Yeah, Um you know, I'm, when someone approaches when someone approaches me to do something, and that something involves replacing something that's always that's already there, a lot of times my first question to them will be, "Are you sure you want to change this thing?" I mean, um, if they're successful, I'll say, "You know, what is it about this thing that's contributed to your success? What is it about it that's you know that you think is impeding even more success?" Um, I don't think change for change's sake is a really exciting or interesting brief to get. Um, I think it's really interesting if that answer comes back and it's like, yeah, this thing is fine, except we really need to do this, that, and the other thing, and it's time. Now, sometimes they'll come to you and it's something that is just obviously um, not good, and there's you can sort of it's in glaring need of, of improvement. Um, but even in those cases, um, people who are used to the thing will sort of not be happy that it's changing. I think probably half the human population and maybe even a lot more than that are just people who are fundamentally predisposed to resist change. They're conservative. They, right. you know, they, they put their toothpaste in the same place right. every night and the, it's there when they wake up in the morning and, you know, they, they, they sort of, they're habituated to things. And I think, you know, logos, which are an odd cosmetic little thing and something that, uh, uh, you know, 20 years ago, no normal person could have been expected to have an opinion on. Only, you know, right. trained professionals like you and me yeah. uh, were thought, you know, we're, we were thought odd that we had opinions about these things, yeah. right? Um, but now people, you know, pe people have opinions for a number of reasons. One of them is that their relationship with something like the Instagram logo or icon is you know that's really part of their life. If they're enthusiastic users of that um, of that platform, they are interacting with that symbol, you know, right. dozens of times a they day, hundreds of times almost. a day. They yeah. think that it's theirs. It's part of their life, you know. Right. And then suddenly you change it on them, and they feel like you know you're changing something that belongs to them, right? And people just don't like that. They don't like yeah. they don't like that if uh, if um, which is valid, if, I think. I mean, I yeah, yeah. get that. Yeah, it's legitimate. But on the other hand. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, and I think anyone who does, for, for instance, I know a lot of architects who do. Um, uh, I know a lot of architects, including a lot of architects who are involved with historic preservation and those kind of issues. And on one hand, it's a tragedy to knock down a beautiful old building. On the other hand, if if we're not allowed to ever knock down any buildings to build newer buildings in their place, you know, that more or less halts progress 
right. you know, at a certain time. You know, it means like, you know, you're living in, in you know, in a, um, in a museum, basically. Everything's like frozen in time. So there has to be this kind of push and pull between uh, the comfort that, that tradition and equity and older things provide and the need for, for us to experience new things and progress. And just like, you know, um, evolution in the animal kingdom, it's, you know, sometimes that, that progress is steady. Sometimes there are weird kind of like, you know, mutations that aren't fated to survive that long. But sometimes yeah. one of those mutations thrives and ends up setting a new standard for what, um, for what things can look like. So, um, uh, so I think that, you know, I actually think that this conversation, this debate, even when it's at its most stupid, is healthy and sort of interesting. And moreover, I get the sense that um, clients out there are going to be um, increasingly disappointed if they put out a logo and no one comments. They change their logo and no one comments on right. it. They'll sort of think, well, what did we do wrong? That was hardly worth the trouble. They, they, I think they deep down even rather provoke a um, yeah. you know a Twitter storm of abuse that you can always survive and get through that sort of nets out to sort of like more attention for you your company and the fact that you're a living changing thing right. um, and you know then just sort of like someone that no one feel no one pays attention to no one feels invested in no one feels like they own the definitely you know all these people are dying to have that level of identification with their companies you know where consumers right. really think oh that's my company i really identify with how dare you change the logo without asking my permission i mean who wouldn't want right. that it's my so, tribe yeah yeah exactly um you know in, in terms of, of of these logos though do you think that designers like i just watched um uh, the other day on the AIJ YouTube page, there is a great video. Um, forgive me for not remembering her name. Something Tao, I think. She's uh, one of the creative directors over at Chipotle. Mm -hmm. And she was uh, yeah, showing... Yeah, no, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, she was just showing um, how just using a burrito, a silver foil burrito, and how much they were able to do with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you had mentioned, um, I think it was on Debbie Millman's pod, uh, interview, uh, you had mentioned about how... Uh, chopped or whatever the thing was, you were, you know, working in the kitchen. It's like you can use anything. Yeah. Or then yeah. you were saying about you can use a turn up, you can use three things ready yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you think that a lot of people do these kind of rebrands as sort of uh, like a cop out, dare I say? Because cause on the one hand, you know, you could look at it like sometimes it's needed. Like in the case of Verizon, I think that it was needed. But I think there are other times that's like, well, we can't really make anything that would be like noteworthy. So let's just do something completely different. Yeah, I mean, I like sometimes, like I said, it's 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 unsatisfying to do this work when you feel you're just. Um, it's it's the most satisfying to do when you think you're making some sort of change that's 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 mirroring uh, a real change of substance in the relationship the the company or the institution has with the public, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's always a gap between the way people are and the way they're perceived. There's also a gap between the way they're perceived and the way they want to be perceived. Right. And there's also a gap between the way they are and the way they want to be, you know, and I think, um, you can't, you know, the way they are and the way they want to be, that's sort of up to them. But designers can play a role in how people are perceived, and sometimes that outward perception um, ends up being, it can reflect real change or it can actually drive change, you know? Like, if you, you know, at the end of The Wizard of Oz, 
um, you know, Oz gives, uh, gives everyone, you know, sort of gives the cowardly lion courage, gives the tin man uh, a heart, gives the scarecrow a brain. And he actually, you know, what's really funny is, what's beautiful about that story and about the movie particularly is that um, uh, throughout the entire movie, the, the scarecrow is the smartest one. He always has the ideas. Right. The tin man is the one that's always motivated by sentimentality and emotion. And the, the cowardly lion is the one that at the moment of truth acts with real courage. Right. So they all actually have those traits within them. They just are unaware of it and they're longing to sort of have them expressed. So what they right. get are these outward manifestations, actually artifacts that are associated with those things, a diploma for, um, uh, for, uh, for the, um, uh, Scarecrow, for instance, and like you know, the ticking heart for the uh, um, for the uh, uh, Tin Man. Those things are those are logos, basically. Those yeah. are that's like that's like design. That's, that's like beautiful. Uh, what you just said that's awesome. It's, it's communication design, <laughs> and what it does is not making you know them smarter or right. More um, giving the more of a heart or more. Because he didn't really have any power, right? I mean, that was kind yeah, of like yeah. The, he didn't have any power, but right. he, but he, but he was a showman, and I think that designers are showmen. You know, what we yeah. do is uh, it has a rhetorical meaning, and I think um, you know if you're trying to like make someone look smart and they're actually dumb, you know, fake you know glasses with you know yeah big glasses with like fake glass in them is and a like man bun. yeah is gonna <laughs> you know it's it's it, you're still going to say as many dumb things as you're capable of saying, um, you know, and you're not going to fool people for long. But I think, um, to the degree that someone is smarter than they look, um, you know, you can actually do a lot of things to make them look smart. And I think part of what design is all about is figuring out what those triggers are to help people align the way they think of themselves, the way they want to be perceived, the way the public perceives them and kind of get those things all lined up a little bit more neatly in a way that benefits everyone. That's so cool. That's definitely the, the, uh, the, on the best of clips right there. I'm going to chop that right out. You know, I, I think I would be remiss if, uh, if, if not to ask this because uh, I feel in a way like kind of like the luckiest guy in the world as a graphic designer because, uh, you know, in the coming weeks, probably in the next you know, two or three weeks, I will be going into a new job. And I might be, I'm pretty sure I'm like the first person ever who's had the opportunity to sit down <laughs> with you. Uh, for kind of like a brief before my career, this will, this is video is going to be very weird to watch in the yeah. future. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, you know, just curious, like what what have you learned along the way uh, in terms of um, you know how to carry yourself? Uh, I, you know, and what I, I understand that you've kind of had a, only worked at a few places, which is a little bit different than the path of most people. But if if you had to give me any advice, uh, you know, things to av- things to avoid. Um, um, well. Um... I mean, some of the things that were important to me were, um, uh, and it took me a long time to learn all these things, but they were the keys for me is one that, um, you don't learn by talking, you learn by listening. And if you like to talk, um, and you're smart and you're articulate and you sort of sound that way to me. And I think of myself, I used to think I was super smart, super articulate. And, uh, but you don't actually, you know, the part of a conversation you learn from is the part where the other person's talking. And, um, and if you're, you know, if if you're a designer and you sort of think you're selling stuff, uh, you're selling yourself, you're selling your ideas. Um, the way you think you have to sell it is just by, you know, getting out your fire hoses and then just turning them all the way up and just blasting the people you're pitching to into submission. And 
I can I can do that and it just doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Right. Um, it's not a, it's not a good way to be, and you don't learn anything from it, and it's just no fun. So there was a point along the way where I just sort of had this Zen kind of experience, and I realized I'm just going to relax and be in the moment and listen instead of talking all the time. And that actually was a big help to me. Uh, another thing is to um, um, be. Well, and then those other things that like our our kindergarten rules, like yeah. uh, work hard and be nice, and um, right. and actually, um, and be um, you know, be honest, admit when you're wrong. Uh, you know, I've sort of, I, I've I've met, I've had terrible disasters in my nine to five life, <laughs> where I've um, committed you know giant errors of judgment or carelessness that have really. Um, uh, you know, made, you know, were, were horrible things for which I could have been fired or, or certainly could have uh, been fired by my boss or been um, dismissed by my client. And in every one of those cases, what I, somewhere along the line, oh, I don't know, I, I, I read this essay that had a huge effect on me in the New Yorker magazine that was written by a structural engineer, the guy that was a structural engineer of the Citicorp building here in New York. It's a fantastic essay um, called something like the 56-story crisis. Um, and in my book, 79 essay, Short Essays on Design, I actually kind of like tell the same story that's in this essay from a design point of view. But basically what this guy had done was um, – he, uh, uh, he was the structural engineer for the Citicorp building, which was a skyscraper built in midtown Manhattan in the mid-70s. Had this really unusual way of, of, of meeting the ground because its structural supports were centered on its four faces as opposed to at the corners. Right. So it would be like a chair that had four legs, but the legs were straight in the middle, straight in the back, and straight on either side instead of at the four corners, Right. And um, he did all these calculations as a structural engineer to determine that it would be safe to do it that way and worked it all out. And then long after it was built and after it was occupied, he had cause to recalculate kind of the, the wind stresses coming from a particular direction and realized that he had made a mistake and that, in fact, the building was in danger of falling down. That could collapse if there was winds of a certain velocity coming from a certain direction. And... Um, he was completely freaked out by this. And, and uh, this essay uh, um, by, I think, a writer named Joe Morgenstern, uh, it, it sort of describes the moment where he sort of realizes what he has to do. And what he does is he calls up the uh, chairman of Citigroup and says, um, you've never met me. I'm a structural engineer, but I have something very important to tell you. Then he just confesses the whole thing and says, I'll do whatever it takes to make this right. And, and this is a guy who basically is at a moment in time where his career is effectively over. He'll, he's liable to be sued for every penny he has and every penny that is, ins- that is li- professional liability insurance can provide. And, you know, it's just his life is effectively over. And instead of, uh, of lying or killing himself or doing a lot of other shit that people would try to do, right. pass the buck. You see, I mean, you just see... You see what politicians do day in and day out when they're faced with that sort of yeah. choice. He simply said, I was wrong. Tell me what I have to do to fix this. You know, or let's work together to fix this. And, um, you know, today he's, you know, uh, uh, I think he's still alive, but he lived the rest of his career as a professional structural engineer. Awesome. Was a, um, uh, was, 
uh, a respected uh, professor of engineering, ended up um, continuing on with his practice, actually emerged with more respect because of this uh, than he would have had otherwise. So um, there's two things you can learn from this story. One is that, um, uh, one is that like, if you make a mistake, just take comfort in the fact that it's not going to kill anyone. If you're a structural engineer, you can make big mistakes that really can't have influence on human safety. Right. If you're a graphic designer, chances are it's just going to be embarrassing. Uh, so your biggest mistake is not that big. But secondly, if you just kind of take responsibility for your, your, your failures as well as your successes and learn from both and approach both with an open mind, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we made a big mistake for uh, one of our uh, 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 for one of our clients, and I just said, um, "Sorry, this is all our fault." You know, I feel really bad. You guys have been nothing. You guys have done all the right thing, and we let you down. So, tell tell me what, what I have to do to make this right, and you know, uh, whatever you say goes. And I was amazed at how much at how how generous and 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 professional and uh uh and hardening the responses when you get when you do that and i just don't think i think for one thing it takes people by surprise because people don't do it that much anymore so they're thrown off right uh but i also think it's just is you know it just acknowledges that uh um again what we do as communicators is about um you know people dealing with each other with kind of honesty and openness and if you do that professionally in your business life as well as in terms of what you're putting out there in the world uh it's it, it'll work for you and it'll work for everyone cool that's so awesome and I, I i agree wholeheartedly and that's so awesome i think that transparency is key and uh, i'm very fortunate to be engaged to an amazing girl my fiance sammy <laughs> And uh, it's very similar to you. The first girl I met, I was like, this is it. Let's ride this out. Yeah, and, good for you. Yeah. And, I hope I, you have the same luck. Yes, I do. And, and the transparency is key. When people ask, like, you guys seem so happy. Why are you so happy? I say transparency and just honesty. And it, uh, I, feel, I feel very fortunate to have learned that lesson early. So, Michael, thank you so much for coming on today. This Rob, has been uh, awesome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Awesome. It's a pleasure. Thank you.